The host of this show, Max Naist, lived in addiction for years and made lots of destructive choices, which resulted in losing friends, family, and his career. After being in jail for the fourth time, he knew he needed to make some big changes. Now, he shares the steps he took, which led to recovery and got his life back. Welcome to Fearless Happiness. 19.7 million American adults have battled a substance use disorder. 38% of adults have battled an illicit drug use disorder. But no matter what the struggle, no matter the challenge, you can overcome anything and become successful. Max and his guests share experience, strength, hope, and faith. If it's PTSD or military-related, trauma, physical, verbal, sexual addiction, alcoholism, you can accomplish your dreams. And with this show, we help others be fearless in their pursuit of happiness. This is Fearless Happiness, and this is Max Naist. All right. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, everybody. Wherever you are in this world, this is Max from the Fearless Happiness Podcast. And today I have a really an amazing guest. Uh, his name is Kale Hauser, but I'm going to let him introduce himself. Kale, what I like to do is have you introduce yourself to the audience, like who you are, what you do, and we'll get rocking and rolling. Yeah. Hi, Max. Uh, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. I've actually been looking forward to this interview uh, ever since you were on my show. And then we got this on the books to be able to kind of um, reciprocate and, and discuss different aspects of, of leadership and, and what it means to be fearless, happy. Um, so yeah, my name is Kale Hauser. I am the co-founder of Kale Hauser Leadership. So we do small business uh, leadership consulting and training as well as sales and marketing and things of that nature. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm your kind of typical entrepreneur trying to make his own way in the world and going through all the same struggles that everyone else goes through and the same challenges and fears and, and successes. And, uh, yeah, so just here to, you know, share, share some of the lessons I've learned along the way and hopefully be of, of value to you and your audience. So thank you oh, for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. And I know you're going to be of value to my audience. So everybody, he did not tell you though, he's also an Air Force veteran, uh, yes. who has, done some missions and, and we'll get into that everybody. But what I like to start off with Kale is like growing up, um, like give us a background of what it was like growing up, any of the challenges you had that led you actually to go say, I'm going to join the military. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a great question. I haven't thought about the, the th first thing that springs to my mind is I didn't really have many challenge. I grew up in a very solid middle-class family up in uh, Washington state, just kind of a couple hours North of Seattle uh, near the Canadian border. Um, my dad was a state trooper. My mom worked in like HR type work, right? So very, very stable, nothing, nothing real insane about it. Um, I, I will say, you know, my older brother, he had a lot of struggles. So he is six years older than me. And in looking back at it now, he got caught up in that the insanity of the 80s in high school and and the drugs and the alcohol and stuff and he he was kind of my example of i don't want my life to look that way so i kind of <laughs> i went the opposite direction right i was kind of the the good kid and i got good grades and um you know i i worked as soon as i was i was legally able to and mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff um really the one of the biggest challenges personally for me that had a, a massive impact on my life was uh my best friend growing up we'd known each other since i don't know probably fourth grade or so uh developed uh 
acute lymphoid leukemia and actually passed away from that when he was 16 years old. So he was a year older than me. So I was 15. And it was just this massive shift of identity, right? Because him and I, you know, being best friends, we had plans. We were going to go to college and we were going to become bush pilots in Alaska. You know, we were we were actually looking at going into the Air Force Academy and, and going that route and all these different plans. And then, of course, you know, that leukemia changed everything. And, and that kind of really, um, I guess, opened up my eyes to the the larger aspect of it. And then, of course, I I, I met my future wife in high school and, and that kind of changed the whole trajectory of my life. But I would say in general, um, you know, pretty, pretty vanilla as far as that, um, the getting into the Air Force is a whole story of it its own. Um, I had actually gone to because I had always wanted to fly in some form or fashion, um, met my wife, got married, got sidetracked with, you know, just kind of getting into the whole work kind of culture and, you know, hey, you're supposed to just get a job and, you know, provide for your new wife and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um but then there came an opportunity through a, an additional friend that was going to go into flight training, you know, through commercial. So I like, you know, it's something I've always wanted to do. And we jumped on it. Uh, but of course, uh, a recurring theme through most of my adult life is timing and the lack thereof. Uh, <laughs> I kind of entered it right at, at the the fallout of 9-11 was still absolutely decimating the aviation industry, right? They were laying off pilots like crazy because nobody wanted to fly after 9-11. Right. Um, but that that was the point where I had completed my first semester of flight school and I was, you know, going on my way, but the the job prospects were very bleak. So I'm like, man, because it was gonna cost me another like 50 grand to finish and get all my certifications just to apply to the airlines, right? And right. earn like $16 an hour that all their at the time all their first officers were making. <laughs> uh so I'm like, this probably isn't the best decision for me uh, and my family. So that's when the Air Force popped back up on my radar and like, you know, hey, that's something I always want to do and kind of just jumped in with two feet. And that's like I said, that's a whole story we could talk, you know, an hour on just with that and and how I got into the Air Force and and all that. But yeah, it was it was a blast while I was in. I loved uh, almost every minute of it. And uh, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm so happy to have done it. Right. It was my pleasure to to serve in that capacity. Well, as my audience would probably through me say, well, thank you for your service. Right. I love yes, thank you. having veterans on my show and 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 hearing their stories, right? Like you and I are kind of opposite, but I was like your brother, right? I'm in that 80s, 90s right. era where where right. I was like, if I would have stayed home, right, not good. But see, I joined yeah. the Navy, right? And at that time, remember I don't know if you remember the commercials, but it was like the fleet on the ocean, and it would say it's not just a job, it's an adventure, yeah. right? And they would yeah, show the you know the the jets coming off the carriers, right? And I'm like, I'm going to be a pilot. <laughs> and the recruiter's <laughs> yeah. like, no, Max, you're not going to be, you're going to be a turd so chaser. That was my nickname, right? Because of the job I did. <laughs> I was a ship's nice. plumber. And, but, um, uh, right. And, and whatever reason it is that we, we join the military, right? Right. For me, what I've learned, right. And I'm sure yourself too, it's, it was, uh, for me, it's what I needed. It helped give me that discipline I needed, the work ethic that I have today is not only watching my mom work her butt off, right. But going into the boot camp and, and being in that military with all the training and everything is a big reason I have the work ethic, work ethic I yeah. do. And and that gives yeah. you the work ethic that you need to be that leader and go into small businesses and teach them whatever you got marketing sales and stuff. Right. Yeah. So um, I'm going to ask you a little bit about like when you um, joined, 
right? Because audience, you got to understand, he started as enlisted and then he came out when he got out as an officer. So those are some right. challenges in and of itself. So give my audience a little bit of, of background on that your journey? military career. Yeah. yeah, like how your journey started, how it was while you were in there and some of the stuff you did, right? Because I know you and I've talked about it before, um, you know, the on the missions you have done while you were in right. there. And then uh, yeah. tell them how you got through that. Yeah. Well, I will say, feel free to interrupt and interject questions if I start going off on too weird of a tangent through this journey, because it is a little bit of a journey. Uh, so like I said, I was in civilian flight training, realized the writing was on the wall. It was going to be just wicked, too expensive to finish, but I still wanted to be aviation related. And then this whole, you know, back to my high school days of wanting to join the Air Force. Obviously, it was too late for the academy because when I was married and you can't go to any of the service academies as uh, being married. Uh, so I went to my local recruiter, said, you know, hey, and I knew I wanted to be an officer, like I just something in me like, like, yeah, that's the path that was appealing to me, right? Because, you know, right. I wanted to be a pilot and all those kind of things. You need to be an officer for that in the Air Force because we don't have warrant officers that do flight jobs. And uh, so I go to the local recruiter. We were actually living in Las Vegas at the time. And I remember walking into and now remember the timing, same reason I got out of the commercial aviation, the fallout from 9-11. Well, the same thing with all the services. Everyone was trying to get into the military, right? And in, in mm. some form of fashion. And I right. went through, did all my testing and my my MEPS and my medicals and all that kind of jazz. And you know, fortunately, I tested very well. So I was qualified for all the jobs as enlisted. Cause I knew like it was it was kind of a similar situation. Like, hey, I can either, you know, spend the thirty thousand dollars and you know, the two or three years to get my bachelor's degree and then apply to become directly an officer, or to me in my pro broke mind was, hey, I could just enlist and have the military pay for all my education and then you know commission <laughs> right. down the road, which seemed like a much better idea to me, uh, especially my mindset at the time. So that's the route we went. It was basically like I can do pretty much any job for you know four years to get the GI Bill and then right. you know go to school and finish my degree and then commission. So uh Anyway, I go to this recruiter, right? Awesome, awesome guy. I'll never forget him, Master Sergeant Gonzalez. I still remember him to this day. Uh, and we get all signed up, and he's like, "Okay, well, six months was what they were looking at right now for a delayed enlistment because they were so backlogged, right, for people trying to get in after nine eleven and stuff." And I'm like, "Man!" And I was basically doing nothing. I think I, I was working at a Ford dealership at the time, just selling cars, just as a way to try to make money as well. I was trying to figure out what to do. I'm like, man, I don't, I don't want to stick around here, just basically wasting six months of my life and of time. And I said, there's got to be another option. And he goes, I'll never forget this conversation. I can still like feel sitting at his desk. And he goes, well, there is one other option. He goes, you can do what's called a quick ship. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds pretty ominous. Like, what does that mean? He goes, well, basically... We we ship out to basic training every Tuesday, like every Tuesday morning, we ship new recruits down to San Antonio, right? So Air Force Basic is down at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San right. Antonio, Texas. And uh, he says, you know, you're qualified for every job, so we're not interested. But essentially, if somebody falls out, you know, like whether for medical or something happens to a recruit that they are not able to take to, you know, leave on the plane to start to start uh, basic training that week, you take their spot. And I'm like, oh, well, that's that's not too bad. Like, I can do that. Like, basically, I want to get in, right? So I don't right. care if it's this Tuesday or next Tuesday, because it's basically, you know, you just fill that spot and it could be very last minute. And he goes, no, Kale, you take their spot, as in whatever job they had contractually signed for is now my job. 
So whether they had signed up to be an aerial gunner or a dental hygienist or a security forces, like anything, then right. that is the spot I'm taking. So it was a complete crapshoot. Uh, so I kind of thought about it. I'm like, well, you know, it, it went back to the whole goal is just to get in. I can do pretty much any job for, you know, the four years or however long it was right. going to be. And we'll go from there. So I signed up for it. That was like on a Thursday. He goes, legitimately, go pack your bag because you'll probably get less than 12 hours notice before you have to be on a plane to leave. And it wasn't that Tuesday, but the following Monday afternoon, he called me, says, all right, your plane leaves at 4 a.m. tomorrow morning. You're you're heading out. And I ended up going in uh, open general which for the Air Force, the general classificate, right? Because you've got your mechanical, electrical, right. um, administrative, health, and then I think general is the final. So the general is like your security forces, your um, air traffic controllers, aerial gunner who's on there, like a whole bunch of things. And then so I just went in and and it was a crapshoot of, of what the Air Force wanted to give me. And I ended up getting picked up for command post. Which is kind of, uh, so it's a total honor job. So it's a, uh, you sit at a desk, you're the red phone, basically. You're the, you're the go between between the base commander and higher headquarters. Um, you know, so all the reporting, like if incidents happen on base, then you're reporting up the chain of command or if they've got right. orders flowing down. Um, and it was great. Uh, it, it was a blast. I got stationed in Eglin Air Force Base. Uh, it was my first duty station. Um, which was pretty, pretty legit, uh, at the time. That career field, the one Charlie three command post career field was 300% overmanned. And they still put me in it as a new, as a new brand new E3 coming out of basic training, um, which was pretty nuts. We, uh, we worked like eight hour shifts, three on, three off kind of thing. And, you know, you're in, in Florida, just hanging out at the beach. And it was before we had kids, just my wife and I. And <laughs> wow, it was a blast, man. Right. But then, so to continue the story, Again, going back to my ultimate goal was I wanted to be an officer. So I was like, man, I, you know, so as soon as I could, after I got all my initial training done and I'm basically settled in my job, like I started enrolling in classes. I know I've got to start, you know, getting my general eds done and all that kind of nonsense. Um, so I started, you know, focused on my, what is it? The Air Force Community College, you know, your associate's degree and, and then just starting taking more classes. And then it came across my purview of this program that they were running at the time. It was called the Airman Enlisted Commissioning Program. And it was a scholarship program for enlisted guys and gals to get their commission. And it, dude, best deal on the planet. Please don't hate me for taking advantage of this. But it was essentially, you can get, you can go to any school in the country. And there was only two qualifications. One, it had to be under 15,000 a year. So it basically a state school. You couldn't go to Harvard or Stanford, right. you know, nothing like that. Right. And then it had to have an ROTC detachment, but you weren't in ROTC. You were just administratively assigned to them while you were in school. And you could do it as a, a two or a three-year program and get a technical degree of some sort. So you couldn't go and be like, I'm going to get a degree in Spanish or, you know, or some, some liberal arts like women's studies or anything like that. It had to be, you know, meteorology, some sort of engineering, chemistry, you know, stuff right. like that. Um, so I applied for this to, to do mechanical engineering. And as I was looking at schools, so I'm stationed at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida at the time. And I'm like, oh, it'd be easy just to go to, I think it was like West Florida University. It was just down the road. You know, they had mechanical engineering and a ROTC debt. But I'm going, you know, I'm looking at doing this for a three-year program because you stay on active duty. Like they pay you. Your job becomes just to go to school and not fail a wow. class. Like you are, you're earning time no different than if I was serving regular at my regular job, right? Best deal on the planet. So I put University of Hawaii, 
a mechanical engineer and I got picked up and they, they PCS to me and my wife and our car and all our stuff out to Hawaii. And I got assigned to the ROTC debt at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu. And I spent three years going to school and that was my Air Force job and my only job for that three years. And then at the end, when I graduated with my degree, I went to OTS, you know, did the little three month officer training and then right. became a mechanical engineer for that. It, Man, yeah, that's, was, that's pretty cool. Yeah. See you. Yeah. That's awesome though. Cause see, look, when I, I never left California when I went into the military. Yeah. I'll tell you why. Yeah. So here, most of the audience knows, but I got to tell you. So went to boot camp in San Diego, went right. to a school in uh, Treasure Island, which is on across the bay from San Francisco, right? right on the other side of Oakland, on the other side of the Bay Bridge. And they, so, you know, when you go to school, well, I don't know if they did this in the Air Force, but they give you this sheet and they go, here's your dream sheet. We want to see where you would like yeah. to go, but we can't promise you where you're going to go, but we want to see, right. right? Just tell us. So being the California kid I was, right, I put all these foreign ports. I put, I, I had Spain as my top one, right. Portugal, or Portugal was my number two. And the only one closest to the, you know, the 49 other states was Hawaii. <laughs> right. I go to school, I graduate school, and I'm thinking, cool, I'm going to, I'm really going to see the world, right, and do something. <laughs> I open my yeah. orders and it's Long Beach, California, Kale. That's 20 minutes from where I grew up. <laughs> I was nice. like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So it was, right. I called my mom. I said, don't pack my room because she was going to use it like as an office in her her yeah, spare room, yeah. right? I, she goes, wait a minute. What happened to this? It's an adventure, not just a job thing. And <laughs> I go, right. I guess it's in Long Beach, mom. So yeah, yeah. anyway, but that's cool how that worked out for you. So you get your degree, right? You finish up schooling yep. in Hawaii. Where do yep. you get stationed so next? And yeah, give so us some I, more stuff on on how that turned yeah, out. Yeah, so the you. the journey continues. We went. I I go to officer training school in Alabama, uh, Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama, is where uh, Air Force officer training schools, dude. And I will say as a side note, of the eighty seven other officer trainees that were in my class, like eighty three of us were all prior enlisted guys and gals. It was so much fun. I have never had as much fun at a at a. A military training as as what that was like the first you know week or two kind of suck because they're like uh they're trying to be all basic training but then it transitioned to just the officer side and it was more like academics and things like that okay. and it was it was a blast but anyway so i i graduated that uh and i got stationed in same thing i've i tried to get overseas I, I guess you could classify hawaii overseas but not like a foreign right right i tried to get overseas my entire career and i could just never pull it off uh, i got stationed in tinker air force base in oklahoma city oklahoma and i'm like <laughs> it was one of those like well i spent the last three years in hawaii i guess it's time to pay the piper and just go to <laughs> right. somewhere that i don't you know, like, all right, middle of Oklahoma, right? Because I'm from the Pacific Northwest, you know, green right. trees, rivers, mountains, ocean. Uh, now we're going to the middle of Oklahoma. Um, but I will say, hands down, of everywhere I've ever lived my entire life, both my wife and I agree, Oklahomans are the nicest people that we have ever met anywhere. Like, wow. you know, even you know, Texas, Florida, Hawaii, like Oklahomans, man, if it weren't for the weather and how stupid hot and tornadoes, we would move back there in a heartbeat just for <laughs> the people that you get to make friends with and, and become a part of. So that's awesome. So yeah, so ended up a mechanical engineer um, as a, you know, second brand new second lieutenant ends up at Tinker Air Force Base. And I kind of get thrown in and 
I got my first deployment from there. Uh, I was working air traffic control and landing systems. So those are all like the radars and stuff, but the deployable. So I had this major who, and that was a different world because so, so we fell under the acquisitions umbrella, which is, you know, new acquisitions and sustainment and, and depot maintenance and all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, so it's very civilian heavy. My first squadron, it was me <laughs> as the brand new second lieutenant. So at this point, I'm like six years into my military career, but just commissioned. And then our squad squadron commander, who was a major, and everyone else was a civilian. So it was like 42 others, all civilian, like engineers and program managers. So it was, it was a bizarre construct, right? It's like you were in the military, but you weren't really, right? You You wore the uniform and you showed up and you did PT. But your day-to-day job was not military at all, right? It was because right. I worked in a cubicle and I wrote reports and all that kind of stuff. But but it was fun. Um, I did my first deployment. I did Iraq and and uh, we were supposed to do Afghanistan at that one, but we didn't. But we hopped around Iraq and, and got to experience that, which was pretty legit. But we did it with the uh, the Air Force Audit Agency. So they have to go around and like audit you know, equipment and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of right. accompanied them as the subject matter expert on our equipment. Um, which was cool. I got to, you know, first time I ever got to see a, a RPA and the unmanned air vehicle, the drones. And uh, first time I got to shoot a 50 cal and stuff, you know, because because it was crazy about my major went with me, my squadron commander. Like he was he was your old school classic horse trader. He was famous like, all right, here's what we're going to do. Right. Like and he would just <laughs> go out and meet people. And he'd be like, all right, we're going to go meet the security forces guys and we're, they're going to let us shoot their 50 cal, right? And we're like, okay, cool. Like, oh, we're going to go over <laughs> here and talk to the MQ1 guys and they're going right. to let us watch their takeoff and landings. I'm like, okay, cool. So as a you know new lieutenant, it was it was pretty legit. Um, but I came back from that and I, I got that bug, right? Like I have to deploy again, like something actually meaningful instead of me just following people around, you know, doing this right. audit stuff. But with engineers, like they're, they're classic for like, you never deploy. I had an 06 Colonel who was my, I don't know what your, your Navy equivalent would be, but he was basically the group commander, right? So you've got your squadron, then your group, and then your wing for the, for the air force. 24 years had never deployed one time in his entire career as an 06. Cause he was in the engineering acquisitions. You just don't, you know, right? Uh, there's just not that opportunity. You're not a, you're not a ground pounder. You're not, you don't do any of that kind of stuff. You write reports and, you know, buy new equipment, that kind of stuff. But I got that bug and I actually, not long after um, I got back from the Iraq deployment, I was, you know, I'm like, man, like, how do I figure out how to do this? And I just started like emailing people and calling like functionals and deployment managers. Like, how do I, how do I get out the door again? How do I, you know, make this happen? And I think just through my persistence and my obvious desire to, to do that, uh, I ended up, volunteering for a 365 day rotation to Afghanistan, which my wife wasn't super happy about. We had uh, two young boys at this point. Um, I think Kai was just under two years old or maybe just over two years old. And my youngest son was, you know, 19 months less. So maybe like maybe eight months old or so. So my wife wasn't super stoked about me leaving for a year to Afghanistan, but it was something uh, in the scheme of things where like, you know, as an officer, there's like a 95% chance that I'll have to deploy for a year at some right. point, you know, especially if, if I gain rank and become a senior officer. So it's like, I can do this now when, when our boys are little versus doing it when they're in high school, you know, where, or right. me not being around for a year makes a big difference in their, Absolutely. their development and life and stuff. So 
a little bit tactical in how we decided to do that and the timing of it. But um, it was a blast. I ran around Afghanistan for for a year. I I did their um, the Afghan National Police Biometrics Program. So I was setting up biometric enrollment for the Afghan National Police. So we set up offices. I got to travel. I think there's like 34 provinces in Afghanistan, and I traveled to about 20 of them. Uh, wow, that's it was, a lot. It, yeah, yeah, it was a blast. Um, there was a couple moments where I'm like, all right, here ends Kale Hauser. Like this is this is the end, you know, uh, that that were a little bit shocking, but you know. Well, let's talk about that because, and yeah. the reason I, I, I right, because a lot of my military friends, right, as you know, a lot of yours, yeah. maybe, right, they don't talk about a lot, right, 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 and it, and it's uh, it the challenge sometimes is them transitioning from the military to civilian life, right. And maybe I'm wrong, but this is what I gathered and talking to other fellow veterans, right? Whether they're officers or um, enlisted, right? It's almost like prison where they just say, here's your gate money. Boom. See ya. Thanks for your time. Right. There's no like, okay, you're not going to help me transition. Right. Because it was an interesting conversation I had with a fellow vet where he said that that's what threw him into a spiral because he was so ingrained in the military lifestyle, right? Because you know how we are. We train. There's always yeah. training going on, right? You're always doing. That's why our military is the best, you know, because we yeah. train so hard. And then we get thrown into And it was like that when I got out, right? It was no. Right. They were like, thanks for your time, right? We took care of you. We fixed your ankle. Now <laughs> right. it's time for you to get out. Bye, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like that challenge for you, um, well, especially let's talk about this first. So you're in Afghanistan, right? And we know what kind of environment that was. So you kind of touched on it, right? So tell my audience like what that like, because for you to say, okay, bye, everybody, this is almost right. And you're doing I can see the smile because we know but, but when you're actually in it, right? Have you? Well, tell the audience what the challenges were for you until to this day, like, I know there's some stuff that you go through kind of, we touched on when you interviewed me, but um talk about that right because i want people to know that those people out there like yourself our brothers and sisters who are protecting this country how they get treated when they get home and sometimes how they even get treated while they're still in there so i know it's like bucket up we got another patrol to do or whatever another assignment another mission right and so i want my audience to understand like that's why it seems i've had a lot of veterans that have been on my show lately so yeah. Give him that perspective yeah. well, of what it's like to be actually on those front lines and like in harm's way, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was so I will I will disclaimer or I don't know if it's a disclaimer, but just I never shot my gun one time in in a combat situation while I was deployed. I was fortunate in that regard. There were a couple instances where it was just dumb stupid luck or providence, whatever you want to call it, or God's Mm -hmm. protection that I wasn't in that situation where I would have. Uh, One in particular, uh, I worked with, uh, so I was a a first lieutenant at the time, right? So this is now about two years into my commission or so. Um, And I worked with a major who we kind of worked in similar circles. So we would often travel together just to have a familiar face. And there was one trip we were supposed to take this convoy out to Wardak province. And if you remember, uh, extortion one, one, which is the big Chinook, that was, that's where that was shot down. And like, right. I forget how many, it was like 20 ish, all of them perished on, right. on this. And it was, and Wardak province was kind of known for that. It was very 
Taliban stronghold out there. But we were supposed to travel out there through through convoy to you know meet with this local regional uh, ANP guy, national police guy, and something happened that at the last minute my meeting got canceled. But I I forgot to tell him, and it was basically I woke up the next morning at five a.m. to him calling me like, "Hey, they're calling your name for this convoy you're supposed to be on." I'm like, "Oh, sir, you know, I I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you, and and I forgot to tell the convoy guys that you know I I'm not going anymore." He's like, "All right, cool. We'll see you in a couple of days when I get back." Well, that on their way back, they got completely attacked and annihilated. He ended up getting shot through the leg. Um, fortunately, nobody died, but there were several people that got wounded because of the three MRAP convoys, they smoked the the last one and it took a while for the front two to even realize that they were dead in the water. So they had to go back. Everyone loaded into the second one and then they smoked the second one. And then everyone is now loaded into this one MRAP and they were able to, to get away. But in the course of that, he, you know, he got shot. Several other people got shot. Fortunately, none, no fatalities or anything. Um, but that was just one of those situations of like, holy, like that, that would have been me. I would have been right there on it, which really, it was already real, but it made it even that much more real because there, you know, there were bombings in Kabul, and and right. um, while I was there, there was that that uh, green on blue. I don't know if you remember that incident in the paper. It was at the Kabul airport where an Afghan officer, I forget if he was army or air force officer, but he essentially under threat of the Taliban, he's like, you're going to do this or we're going to kill your entire family. He went in and killed like eight people in this meeting, um, you know, between NATO personnel, US personnel, some contractors. Um, so that was just kind of always the threat uh, beyond just the normal driving around and and traveling right. and stuff. Um, and there were a couple other incidences. We, we had uh, this... Like I won't go into the whole story, but essentially, because we ran uh, Toyota 4Runners, kind of up-armored Toyota 4Runners, which are great in theory, but they don't upgrade the shocks, they don't upgrade the transmission, they don't upgrade the brakes, but they add like a thousand pounds of, you know, tempered glass and right. steel plates in the doors and stuff. Like, <laughs> awesome, you know, but you're driving this stock 4Runner, but right. adding, you know, a thousand pounds <laughs> of crap onto it. Not to mention us and all of our kit, you know, you put four right. of us in there and we each weigh like 250 pounds, you know, with all of our gear and ammo and stuff. But uh, yeah, we had this one motorcycle pulled out right in front of us and I came like a half an inch from just absolutely running them over. Um, fortunately, we didn't kill them, but it became essentially a Mexican standoff between us and the Afghan police. Like they weren't going to let us leave. And they're like, you got to come down to the the station in downtown Kabul. And I'm like, no, that's not happening. Um, so, and of course, radios aren't working, right? Classic. Like you've got these $20 million radio systems and, and none yep. of it works and all right. that kind of stuff. But that was one of those, like, you know, we were talking and we were a pretty small group and we were actually taking some Canadian police officers to a meeting at the Kabul airport because uh, they didn't have a ride. So we're like, yeah, we'll give you a ride. You know, we're, we're used to that route and stuff. Uh, and this is where that happened. And and we were like having that discussion, like, okay, if it comes down to it, are we getting in a firefight with the Afghan national police because they're wanting to arrest us and take us downtown. And now we're at the mercy of like, and that was a, nope, that's, that's not happening. Right. So it was kind of that discussion of, all right, like how far are we going to take this? Cause they had, they had set up essentially a, a barrier around us, you know, to not let us leave and all that. And, and it was that moment. Yeah. But again, providence, grace of God coming the other direction from the airport to our base was a full MRAP convoy, 50 cows, a whole nine yards. And then once we kind of waved them down and once they stopped magically, the Afghans are like, okay, yeah, you guys can go, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll 
we'll talk to you later. Here's our number. Make sure you call, you know, the lawyers got involved and all that kind of stuff. But, but that was one of those moments like, okay, like this, this is it. I would, I would rather die here than die in an Afghan prison, right. Or, or just get murdered along the way for that process. So, um, you know, those were kind of one of those moments, but leading back to kind of the after effects and, and how you handle that is really, and it took me a while to notice this because when you're in it, you're just in it, right? That's just, that's just the environment you're in. You adapt to it. You, you go into that survival instinct and you do whatever you need to do to just maintain that survivability. Right. But even to this day, so that was in 2011, 2012 is the year that I was there, like June to June. And even to this day, we're now what? 12, 10, 10, 11 years later, hyper awareness is like, is constant with me. Like there is not a point that I do not know who's around me, whether I'm driving, walking at a store, at a restaurant, like hyper awareness is kind of the, the takeaway. And I know that's a common thing, especially with guys that deploy and they've been in those situations and even worse with guys, you know, the actual no kidding door kickers that are, you know, did the Fallujah thing and the Ramadi kind of stuff. Um, you know, those guys are, are way more <laughs> hardcore in comparison to what I went through, but just that takeaway and that's that constant, like, yeah, this is where that, cause I didn't used to be like that. Right. I was like a normal every other day American. I just walked down the street, totally safe in my own, you know, arrogance. And, and now it's, it's, that's kind of all, all disappeared and, uh, it gets a little stressful at times. I will say that. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And people don't understand that. Right. You may have not yeah. have done some actual battle but you were still in that right. situation where yeah it, it would have been a split second decision you know are we you know what right. i mean and like you said thank god i think and you're, you're ready for it at any right. second right you're running around and and there were there were times where we're driving around in our stupid little forerunners which of course are just a massive advertisement for right. anyone that and i remember we got stuck in this traffic jam and there's just crowds of people around us. And I'm going, well, th this could easily be it. Because all you have to do is roll a little grenade right underneath us and we're toast, right? right. And there's, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, yeah, so it's just that. that ang I, I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but just that anticipation, that constantly on the edge of being ready, right? Like right. you said, to respond. Well, actually, yeah. that's what causes PTSD, stuff like that, yep. right? Where, yeah, because I related to like being on the streets, right? In my addiction, right? Where I had to be aware, right? Because not everybody was your friend and, you know, you never right. knew what was going to go down. And, but yeah. I remember like when I first got sober, I was the same way and still am sometimes. Right. Yeah. But like when I would go say early on, I would go to a restaurant. I had to make sure that my back was against the wall and I was near yep. the exit. Cause if something was going to go down, I was getting my family out first or myself, if I was by myself and, and that yeah. hyper awareness that you talk about, right? Like I talked to actually a major uh, in the Air Force, and he talked about like some of the some of the missions he did as a, the you know in the bombers, right? The the radar guy. Right. You don't see anything, yeah. but he says the 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 stuff that plays in his head uh, during those times caused him to be yeah. hyper aware. The PTSD, like just the stuff he imagined in his brain, because he would get reports back of what you know if the mission was good. Yeah. Right. Basically, that um, meant you destroyed whatever you had to destroy. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Everybody and everybody handles it differently. But it, the same theme is what you just said, whether you saw it or not. It's that hypervigilance. Right. Like it does. Right. It changes you. It changes you as a person. Um, as much as you try to say you're back to normal. We know right. we're, we're not fully right. 
Um, yeah. But again, it took. So know. it's interesting that you say that. It took. I I had to tell my wife when I got home. I had to tell my wife, "You will not let me drive this car for at least a month. Like you will drive us everywhere because I was so used to being such an aggressive." you know, driving through the streets of oh. Kabul and the entire surrounding area, like I knew I would, something bad would happen just probably by no fault of anyone else other than they were changing lanes in front of me, right? When I was right. trying to go this direction. And I, and that was the pact that we had kind of made, which is, which is forcing it. But I had that self-awareness, like understanding like, Hey, this is the the type of life I've been living for the last year and the type of mentality you have to have in order to survive that and how it, was an absolutely di dichotomy of of coming back to you know Oklahoma at the time where we you know because I went back to Oklahoma from this right. year deployment, um, but a lot, a lot of guys they don't they realize that too late like you don't think it through those things especially if you you know maybe your first deployment or you don't have you know friends that have done this before that can right. advise you because you're right certainly in the medical community nobody's going to say anything to you not gonna, you know it's not part of your post deployment briefing of oh don't drive a car you know if you were driving convoys in Afghanistan or Iraq maybe don't drive a car for the first couple of weeks you know when you get home cuz you know going 65 down the right. highway is a lot different <laughs> in your town than it is in Kabul or right. Kandahar or wherever right wherever yeah, right really and and that takes a lot of a lot of insight. At least you had that insight. Right. And like you said, unfortunately, yeah. not every guy comes back with that insight or that awareness. Not at all. Right. And yeah. right. That's why I believe that um, yeah, our, you know, and this is a whole different topic, but I believe our government should take care of those guys to make sure they get the help they need, right? Because if they put yeah. their lives on the line, like at least help them reintegrate back into civilian life and get them the help they need. Yeah. So they're not yeah. maybe that guy that thinks he's in Kabul, right? Like on the freeway, on the five going south yeah. on the Santa Ana freeway, like get out of my way. Right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. Right. Because I think people need to be aware that, right. As much as we love serving our right. government, our military serve, they don't prepare us for life outside of right. the military, right? So this is going to kind yeah. of lead into being an entrepreneur, right? Because as we know, sure. being an entrepreneur, right, is not for the faint of heart, right? You you yeah. got to have some grit and you got to have, right? You got to be all in and because it could be scary. So, yeah. you know, tell the audience, you know, a little bit about how that that life prepared you for being an entrepreneur and, and some of those right. challenges and how you became the successful leader guy, you know, this leadership man that teaches companies how to be a leader. Right. Yeah. Well, I do want to, I, I want to touch on two, two quick points. Well, kind of quick points before we get to that phase. Cause so when I came back from Afghanistan, I had actually applied to cross train to become an MQ nine pilot, which is the unmanned, you know, hunter killer stuff, the drones. Oh, the drones. Um, okay. So I entered that yeah, so I entered that pipeline. So I I stopped being a mechanical engineer. I cross-trained to become a pilot. So I was finally like, hey, I'm going to be a pilot, although an unmanned pilot and sitting in right. a box versus up in the air. Um, but that's where, and you don't realize this till years later, right? So that despite all the stuff that came out of Afghanistan, you know, and it, you know, alluding back to taking care of your people, like I, I came home, I had, I think, two weeks off, and then I went straight into work again. You know, like, all right, you're still in the military. They're still paying you and they, they still want their return on their investment. So you go back to work, you know, yeah. um, so you don't get a lot of that decompressed time to even kind of figure out who you are now, especially after spending a year and stuff over there. But so I went into this training pipeline. I graduated. I ended up getting stationed out at uh, Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico. 
tiny little town, like if you took away the military, the median income would be like 18,000 a year, right? It's in the middle of nowhere, uh, New Mexico. It's about two hours from Amarillo, two hours from Lubbock, and about three and a half from Albuquerque, if you think of that kind of triangle. Um, I think that's where my uh, daughter-in-law was stationed when she was there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's gotten better over the years. Uh, I had the, the misfortune of being stationed there for six years. Um, but you go into that. So I worked for Air Force Special Operations Command. And of course, there's a lot of like rivalry between the units because you have, you know, traditional air combat command units and then guard units and then us as Special Operations Command. Uh, but we were, we were legitimately like one of the top tier units that they would call. Like if there were, if there was a, a SEAL team operation going, they wanted us overhead, right? With our missiles and our eyeball and all that kind of stuff. So it was very high, a very, very high standard of performance. So that kind of created its own level of, you know, you're, it's like basically being on this Super Bowl team all the time and every day is the Super Bowl, right? There's right. You're, you're employing missiles and they're, they're basically can't miss and you're employing missiles on, on targets that are in the news, right? Not just some random farmer Afghan dude on the side of the mountain. You're employing like people that you hear about on the news. Uh, so it's, it's, that creates its own level of, I don't know if performance is the right word, but just basically that standard of expectation. Right. But through all my engagements that I had while on active duty, because you talked about your bomber guy and I'm, and not to detract at all of what those guys go through because you know, where we kill like one or two guys with our missiles, right. They're laying down like 2000 pound bombs that are, you know, have a lot of destructive power. But the difference is I'm looking at mine. I'm following that missile in, in high definition and I can see you know, the, the dude's face, right. I can see the car they're driving. And then not only after that, the initial engagement now we just set up because now we want to see, well, who comes to help who comes now, who goes to the funeral, right? So we're following this entire kind of kill chain process in order to gather that in, in intelligence. Right. And you don't realize it at the time because it, you know, you're part of that group. You're part of that club. Like, Oh, you know, did you, did you get that kill? You know, not, right. not to be, flipping about it but that's just in order it's a survival instinct right you you almost like people that you know cops develop the same kind of humor if they have to you know it's kind of that morbid humor and and i forget that they have a term for it but um you know that dark humor i guess you know when you're dealing with that kind of it's just a coping mechanism and it wasn't until i got out of it that i really started to understand the impact of it, right? How much you kind of suppress and like, holy smokes, because, and they're still, you know, trying to do studies and figure this out, especially with the RPA career field, because we weren't deployed. You know, it wasn't a matter of, okay, here's your home unit. You're going to deploy to foreign country for three months, six months, whatever, do your job, kill the people and then come back. So you have that kind of like all this happened over there. Now you're home and you can transition. For us, it was, I went and did my eight to 10 hour shift, you know, five days a week. And whatever happened while I was flying that line happened. And then I would go home that night and hang out and play with my kids and hang out with my wife or go out to dinner or, you know, whatever was going on. And it was, it was never that, that mental break other than my 20 minute drive from leaving my squadron to getting to my front door that, that I had the opportunity to be like, dude, I, I legitimately, you know, just, just killed like four people earlier today. And now I'm home with my, you know, four and five-year-old playing in the backyard. Like 
there's a there's a lot of things that are messed up about that whole process. Well, yeah, and, I was just, you just don't say, realize that. That's got to yeah. be a process that just messes with your head, you know. Yeah. But not at the time. Well, there are examples. Like there, there has been some publications that have talked about guys that have absolutely, you know, snapped from that pressure. Right. Um, fortunately, at least right now, they're they're few and far between. But I think in the years to come, especially as these guys start retiring and you know reaching that age where they're no longer operational or maybe they're more admin or senior leadership, because um, we had we had one guy that had over 150 engagements. 150 engagements doing this. And that's when I left. And he was still on operational duty when I left. Like, I guess, like, you, you can't, you can't quantify how that's going to affect him, you know, right. five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and what that's, you know, Absolutely. how that is going to go through his head. But, and that's, and I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit, you know, similar to your, your bomber guy. Yeah. That's those, not as much anymore the Afghan deployment because it it wasn't so much what I saw there. It's more that stuff, you know, right. of replaying in my head the the no kidding the videotape of of what I watched, you know, and just some of the other atrocities. Even if it wasn't the engagements of us watching some of the atrocities that would happen, just Afghan, you know, Taliban to the Afghan people and and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, pretty interesting. And there was, yeah, a, I mean, thank you for sharing that with my audience. Yeah gives them a, a better picture of what really goes on, right? Because it's right. it's not just the guys on the ground, but it's guys like you that were doing the drones. And I mean, from the right. Chris Kyles to what you did, right? Yeah. I, I saw an interview with another vet, uh, another special forces guy. And he says, you know, that part in, in the movie where, you know, um, Bradley Cooper's staring at a blank TV and he's going through the whole thing in his head. He goes, yeah, people don't realize that that's what you went through. That's what other men have gone through, men and women that are on the front lines. And um, and it's not as easy as just going, oh, okay, I'll shut it down. You'll be fine. Right. That doesn't no, work, yeah. right? We know the brain doesn't work like that. It doesn't right. get to, we don't get to shut it on and off like we would wish sometimes. But, yeah. um, you know. And the so crazy thing is, is, is you don't. Right. Cause at least for me, like, I don't want to identify as that. Right. Cause it's all sensationalized in the movie and everyone's, right. you know, Absolutely. like, like that dramatic scene of him staring at a, a static TV. Right. Like, you're like, okay, you know, that's a little, of course, they did it for the drama of it and stuff, but also to illustrate a little bit. But it wasn't until, cause I've, I would have been the first to tell you, like, no, I don't, I don't have PTSD. Like, that's, you know, that's for the door kickers. That's for the Fallujah guys and the Ramadi guys, you know, the Marines, you know, the Chris Kyles that were no kidding. Right. Like every day they were risking their life by, by going through that doorway. But it wasn't until I actually went and got seen and the doctor started asking me those questions. And I'm like, well, well, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And yeah. And oh, well, yeah. Like <laughs> all those markers are there. Even though I've never, you know, kicked in a door and, and right. done those things, um, which is is pretty, it was eye opening from my perspective, right? Because you you do have that little that machoism that remains, like, oh, of course, you know, I, I'm this, you know, military guy, and I'm, you know, strong of will and spirit and mind, right. and you know, nothing affects me. But right. it is a, a lot, you know, I'm I'm just a dude, right? That that went through some pretty unique and and at times horrendous experiences that, you know, you just kind of have to to deal with it. Yeah, but thank yeah. God, and I, at least today there there is a way to find help and 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 to yeah. get help for stuff like that. So hopefully, you know, our our fellow brothers and sisters that have gone through what you've gone through, and other guys and ladies, right, get that help. That's just like my yeah. biggest prayer, right? Is that 
they don't just get dropped off back home and go like you said okay go back to right. go back to work right get these guys right. help yeah um um so yeah thank you for so, sharing that yeah go ahead. so i wanted to lead in so you talk about the the transition to the entrepreneur right yes so this so there is an assumption that all military officers are leaders or they're great leaders, right? Because that's what we see in our movies, right? You've got your patents and, and certainly you've got real life examples, you know, Colin Powell and, and the Mattises and MacArthur's, right? All the famous generals from our history. Like right. they're, they're easy to associate like, oh, that he was a phenomenal leader, this four star <laughs> general, right? Obviously you can't become a four star general without being a phenomenal leader, which is completely false. But I realized and it was at about my, 10 to 12 year mark. So I'd been commissioned for about seven or so. So I was like a senior captain, senior 03 coming up on my 04 promotion. And I realized like, holy smokes, in my career, I can count one senior officer that I would consider an actual leader and not just a commander. Right. And that's what people don't realize is the military makes commanders. You hope that they're a great leader. You hope that they're one and the same, that that commander is a phenomenal leader. But more often than not, at least in, in my world and the experience that I had in the, in the Air Force, I can't speak for Army or Air Force or Marines or any of those or, or Navy. Um, it, it was rarely, rarely one and the same. And it was almost always the commander, right? That's, that's all they were. If you took away their actual UCMJ authority, they, you know, they'd have been the classic shot in the back of the head in Vietnam because they were just such horrible leaders, you know? Right. Um, so that's what really kind of spurred like, man, there's got to be a different way to do this. Like, there's got to be a way because I went to all the schools, all the professional development that they send us through. You know, the Air Force tries its hardest to try to educate leadership into you and, and pound <laughs> it into you by you attending these classes and stuff. Um, but it's just such a disconnect. And I, I remember when I first got an opportunity to actually be the one in charge, right? So I always tried to practice that kind of informal leadership of setting the example, especially to the younger troops and the younger airmen right. uh, and younger officers, even though I wasn't the one in charge. But when I first got that opportunity as the flight commander, as a combat flight commander, so I was put in charge of my own flight, like they were mine. I didn't have legal authority of them over them, of course, you know, that was the squadron commander, but they were, you know, this was my my people. Um, and I purposely went into it with a different attitude, a different technique. And I found that like it worked, like everything I asked my guys to do, instead of just relying on them, like, you're going to do this because I told you to, and and you're a patriot and you signed up to be in the air force and you're going to follow orders. It was like actually practicing those leadership concepts and skills in order to make it someplace they wanted to be beyond just the, well, I don't want to go to jail or get, you know, get reduced in pay or anything like <laughs> right. that. Um, and then a step further, I got an opportunity to actually be in command, uh, at, with a four month deployment out to Djibouti. And that was just a further test case. Like, okay, even though I legitimately have this UCMJ authority, you know, if I, if I ever needed to take legal action against, you know, somebody in my charge, right. but it was like, forget all that. Like, I'm going to run this this squadron in this deployed environment, like I would run to be led, you know, I'm going to actually try to lead these guys and gals uh, to where, you know, yes, it, it, you know, parts of this suck out here. We're deployed. We're all away from our families, but you know, we still have a right. job to do and, and let's figure out how to do that uh, to our best of our ability to provide our product to our customer, as well as, you know, for our own selves and, and everything else. And, and I right. found great success in doing it. And that was kind of the big awakening moment of like, yeah, maybe, 
maybe I can do this, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, down the road, uh, you know, a couple other things happen in between, but, you know, maybe this is something that I could actually, you know, create a business out of and, and help other people. Cause the reality is whether in the military or you're coming out of college, or maybe you've just been working in some industry for, you know, ever since you were old enough to work, nobody right. teaches you leadership skills. You know, I'm a public school kid. I never had a leadership class growing up. You know, I never had any of that. If you're lucky, you've got an example, you know, hopefully a parent, you know, shows you that, but that's, you know, not too often the case. If you're, if you're even more lucky, you've got a a boss, you know, at some point that you're exposed to that really exuded that, but not very common these days. And it's, it was that understanding that people just don't, they realize once they get into that position, because it's usually a position, right? They get promoted into a supervisor or a shop manager or or a department head of some sort. And they're like, like, I'm a really good welder, but I have no idea how to run the shop of other good welders, right? It's an entirely different skill set. And I'm like, man, that might be a a gap that I can help fill um, for that. So as well as just the the other entrepreneurs that want to start their own business, right? The solopreneurs. And then they're like, well, I need to hire like five people. Right. Like I'm a really good baker. Like I can, I can make muffins like nobody's business, but I have no idea how to get these other people to show up and help me build this business. And and that was really how Kale Hauser Leadership was born um, awesome. to try to fill that need. Yeah. Right. And we need more of you like that, right? Because you're right. Like I didn't take a leadership class in, in high yeah. school. Or even in college, you know, no one yep. said here, you got to take this class on leadership to show in case that day yep. comes, you can lead people, right? Uh, yeah. I've learned and from the only guys way you're like yourself. Get that, yeah, the yep. only way you're going to get that is if you do like an MBA program. But then again, it's going to be very textbook, like leadership, you know, kind of stuff and more, more principles and not, no kidding, you know, how do you get people to show up and want to be at work versus just there because you won't pay them if they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And that's, if you, that's, I love that you said that, right? Because if you're a good leader, right? I know I've worked for people that were really good leaders and they made me want to show up to work no matter what, right? Because they made me feel valued. They made me feel wanted. They made me feel like I was doing a great job. And then there's the people that, you know, okay, if you don't show up, I'm going to dock you pay and you're not going to get paid for today. That's their kind of leadership. And you're like, Go ahead. You know, like, I don't even care now. Right. Um, Right. And and it takes a whole different set of, like you said, skill set to be a good leader. Um, And, you know, to me, if someone says I'm an entrepreneur, like a lot of the circle we run around in, right? Like yourself. Yeah. Like I know I can go to Kale because I know Kale's a leader. Um, There's other people in our area, you know, in our little group, not little, but, you know, I mean, our group (laughs) or mastermind that I know they're a great leader, right? Because like yourself, right. you don't just talk about it, you show how it's done. And right. to me, that's a great leader. They lead by example. Like some of the best leaders I know are in the trenches, right? They're showing us how to do the work, right? Not just telling us how to do the work. And they're not afraid yeah. to get dirty with us, right? And, and that yeah. would, you know, and and your experiences in the military, like we could go for hours and hours and hours now, now just about the entrepreneur part, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you take that plunge, right? You're you're now, you know, doing your own thing. Um, but thank God that you had that insight and that awareness to go, right? These classes that the even the Air Force is sending me to is not good enough, right? Cause right. What right. what is what really let me ask you this? How do I put it? Like, 
what really taught you the meaning of leadership that you knew that this is how it's mm -hmm. got to be done? Right. I would say I can't think of one specific thing or instance, but it was a, a constant pattern of what not to do, of observing these leaders, you know, of course, this is going back to my military examples that I had, because that's what I, you know, that's, that was my world for, for 17 years. Um, but it was this constant, like, okay, this is what this, this leader is doing and seeing because I wasn't at that level, right? I, I was never a senior leader. I, I made, I, re, I separated as a, as a major, um, but I was never in charge. Like, I never ran a squad or anything, but seeing those people that were at that level and just their attitudes, um, they they had the full on expectation of I don't need to do anything to lead these people because I have legal authority to make them come into work. I have legal authority to make them do what I tell. Right? Like it's it's that dichotomy of of that that scenario, but it was more born out of the negative of seeing what didn't work time and time again and time again and realizing okay, well, if <laughs> and I'll just use this quick example. I had one squadron commander who was a, a gunship guy. He was a gunship pilot as, and this was in our, in my MQ nine days. And he came in and he absolutely hated our platform. He's like, this is not a real airplane. Right. Cause he's, he's a manned pilot. Right. He, he right. does all that kind of stuff. Like you got you remote guy. You're not real pilot. But I'm like, dude, even if you think that you're, you're a squadron commander of a remotely piloted aircraft squadron, keep that to yourself, bro. But he, he basically made it no secret that, you know, we weren't a real aircraft. We weren't real pilots, you know, blah, 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 right? All the stupid stuff. And I'm like, what a colossally stupid thing to do as the leader of our squadron. Like, how do you expect people to show up beyond just the minimum to not get in trouble, right? You see MJ trouble with you. Like, and that was just like one of the examples. And I've got, you know, hundreds more of them you know the whole like if you're not for me you're against me mentality right. you know like you're either loyal to me to the end or if you want to go do something else you're dead to me you know and all that kind of stuff and i and i've had the whole gambit of those examples with like maybe two or three actually positive ones that i can think of in my career uh that i modeled some of their behavior after um but it was really just kind of experimenting and and right. looking at yourself and going would i want to be under this person, right? It's, yeah. it's as simple as asking yourself, how would I respond if somebody was talking to me that way as, you know, as you as Absolutely. a leader are talking to your people that way, right? Are right. you a complete, you know, excuse my language, are you a complete dick about it? Or are you kind of <laughs> like, hey, you know, what are you, what are your goals? What are you interested in? Why are you here besides, you know, the obvious needs of a paycheck or or whatever it is that's, you know, your, your type of business. Right. Um, so it was just always so fascinating to me because there were so many, like, like you said, we could spend the next shoot two or three hours of me just relaying stories of of the bad examples that I learned from. And that's what I kind of started Kale Hauser leadership out of was like, Hey, this is the wrong way to do it. How about we do it this way? Right but now I'm kind of realizing like, that's a good start, but I really need to be focusing on the positive aspects of leadership and, right. and things that you, you know, you should start not just out of the negative, you know, growing out of failure, but starting out of, you know, on, on the, the note of you want to be a good leader instead of just Absolutely. not a bad leader. <laughs> well, I appreciate you there's sharing a difference, that. right? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And it's kind of like yeah. my recovery and I relate it to entrepreneurship, right? I look at the yeah. things of what not to do, right? That's right. going to be, make yeah. me. Cause that's where you start. Right. It's successful yeah. in my recovery. And then I start doing the things that I like that I see other people doing that work. 
that yeah. make them a good example, right? Because my sponsor and my mentors always said, you're going to go to meetings, right? You're going to see what to do and what not to do. Hopefully you pick right. the side of what to do, right? right. And and, yeah. and it's for me in the 19 years that I've been sober, it's it's just, it's always evolving, right? And, and that's why right. I'm glad that I made that decision three years ago to go, okay, I'm going to do my own thing, right? Because I yeah. like you, you know, and it doesn't matter, military or in civilian life, right? You always have those leaders where you go, oh, God, I want nothing to do with that. That's not how I roll. And yeah. I really wouldn't work for you, right? And then there's the ones you do go, I like that guy, right? Like, yeah. or that lady or whoever the boss is, right? And they go, because they're not afraid to get their hands dirty, right? That's a true right. leader that is going to show you because they're leading by example. And, and that's what right. you've done for me, Kale. Like, you know, I appreciate you taking so much time and, and being on my show. Um, I just knew I had to get you on here. Like I said, yeah, we I go. apologize for being long winded at times. <laughs> no, no, I wanted I I, just, I wanted you to share your story, but we do have to close this off in a minute. So I like to ask you if if my um, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and then Please. so I wrote a book called Fearless Happiness, as you can see behind me. That's the name of my book. Yes. Also being in the military and a, a father, a husband. Right. And, and now a leader in, in entrepreneurship. What does fearless look like for you? And what is that? How does that show up for you on a daily basis now? Yeah. Yeah. I've actually been thinking about this a lot because, you know, it's easy to come up with the the standard answer, but really for me, it's, it's that do it anyway and do it now. So, right. Overcoming fear. That's like, that's the do it anyway. But the second aspect of that, and I've, I've been guilty of this so many times in my life, like, okay, yep, I'm, I'm going to do it. But maybe next week, you know, or I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to work up to that or something. But it's no, it's that kind of do it now is that I think often forgot part of the fearlessness aspect. So, so that fearless, fearlessness life for me is really, yeah, figuring out what I need to do anyway, but also doing it now. Right. Not waiting, sense. right? That hesitation, that's yeah. what gets us kind of like, I'll forget it. Maybe I won't do it then. I love right. it. Yeah. yeah. So happiness, as you can see, I put a why in there. I did that for a yeah. reason. What does happiness mean to you and how does that show up in your life today? Yeah. So happiness, this was also something that I I had to take us a second to step back from you know what I would consider kind of a standard answer and and it's really about knowing yourself enough because we all have expectations that society puts on us you know whether it's yep. your family your spouse you know the people you work with the coworkers people you go to church with you know your community in general like there are expectations based on your age your your background your education level your work history like all those things but it's about for me happiness is about like I I understand that and that's you know the probably the mold that you would expect from somebody like me to to travel this certain route but that that's not me and happiness with that why aspect is really about figuring out what it is that gets you going what it is that gives you fulfillment and purpose and pursuing yeah. that and doing it anyway and doing it now i love it that's awesome yeah sweet so <laughs> this leads me to the next couple of questions because you're not off the hook yet yeah. all the way if people want to work with you, Kale, where do they find you? Where do yeah, they so find? Yeah, so I'm on. Where do they find Kale the leadership, Kale Hauser guy? That I want to be a better leader. Teach me how, Kale. Yeah, yeah. So the easiest way to get into my world, well, one, I'm on 
pretty much all the social media platforms. So you can absolutely subscribe to me, whether it be whether it be a LinkedIn type of person or a TikTok person or Instagram or or Facebook or whatever or Twitter. Uh, so you can absolutely find me. Most of them is just at Kale Hauser uh, on most of those platforms. But I run a, a VIP leadership mastermind. It's a, a twice a week um, membership program for uh, like group coaching with leadership sales. Uh, so you can go to VIPleadershipmastermind.com and check mm -hmm. us out. Um, it's pretty low entry as far as that goes. And you get the opportunity, right? We do Q&A and role playing. And of course, you know, some training aspect of leadership and sales and stuff. So that would be the best. Check it out. VIPleadershipmastermind.com. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. So before I let you go, Kale, there's one last question I like to ask my guests. And that is, yes. what piece of advice would you give my audience to help them grow as a human being to become better today so they can be a better person tomorrow? Yeah, that's uh well, that's not a very small question, is it? <laughs> um, the biggest piece of advice, and I'm going to kind of relate this of what I would tell, you know, somebody, you know, whether it be a business owner or an entrepreneur or a struggling leader that would come to me and says, well, what's the first thing, you know, I need to do to be a better leader. Cause that's, I think that's what we're all called to be in some form or fashion, whether it be a leader of your family, a leader right. of your community, your church, you know, certainly at your workplace, um, but it's really understanding and it's it's your core values. It's really understanding what do you stand for? What do you value most? And using that as a filter for everything else, using that as a filter of what kind of employees you're going to hire, the activities you're going to do or not do. Um, it basically becomes that top level. You know, if you think of your life as a funnel of all the options you have versus what you're actually going to do with your time and energy and resources. Right. Your core values are right at the top that filter, you know, it, it basically tells you what you're going to stand for and who and what type of person you're going to be. Like for, you know, for instance, you know, Kale Hauser Leadership, our, our core values are integrity, relationships, forthright and results. Like those are in some form or fashion, everything we do will fall into one of or fall through one of those four categories. And that's what mm -hmm. defines us as a company and me as a person. Awesome. I love it. Thank you for sharing that with us, Kale. Thank you for ending that with that, right? Because it's it's cool. If you're paying attention, audience, you've seen that lately. Most of my uh, my guests, sorry, uh, I'll tell you, you got to have some core values, right? And then that's yeah. how you run not only your life personally, but anything yeah. outside of that, right? And it, you can't go wrong if you have um, some strong core values, right? And yeah. And and having that and seeing what I like to say is that I have a set of core values and it it attracts people, the like-minded people, right? Yep. So 100%. Thank you so much for being here, Kale. This was just an awesome, awesome time. Thank you for sharing your story, taking the time out of your busy schedule. And you heard them, audience, you know, have a set of core values. You can't go wrong. Yeah. Go out there and, and be the leader that you want. Um, yeah. It's been amazing. Thank Kale. you, Max. Thank you. I I appreciate you having me. Um, congratulations on the success of your of your podcast, Fearless Happiness, and everything you've got going on. Uh, it has been my absolute honor uh, to be a guest on your podcast, and thank you for your service as well. Thank you, Kale. Well, everybody, you know, like I say, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are. Till next time, this is Max from the Fearless Happiness Podcast. We will all see you later. Have a good one. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Fearless Happiness. The numbers on addiction are absolutely stunning. Max lived in addiction for years and during that time made some terrible choices, losing his family, friends, and career. But he turned his life around and now Max works as a substance abuse counselor helping people in their recovery. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we hope you had fun along the way. We know we did. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at maxnaced.com on Facebook at max.naced. Till next time, keep the fight and we'll see you soon.